0: Today will be in Matthew chapter 19. Um, if you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there's one probably near you. And uh, you can find our passage on page 774 this morning. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, you'd like to take one of those, please consider that as a gift uh, to you. So 774, and we'll look at Matthew chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 13 through the end of the chapter. If you found it there, let's go ahead and read. I'll read aloud and you can follow along beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 19. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You, know, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God. All things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What will will we then have? And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Lord, I pray that you would bless uh, the reading and now the study of your word, Lord. You've told us that your word uh, is life. You've told us that, uh, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, you have told us that your word is is the way for us to cleanse our way. Lord, you alone have this word, and we can't go anywhere else. So now as we've come to look at the scriptures, we realize we're, we're opening uh, your heart. We're opening your revelation to us. And I pray that we would truly see what you have to say in the scripture today. That you would give the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words in our mind, They would be applied not just in our thinking, but in our hearts and in our living. Lord, and perhaps somebody will have an encounter with you today through your scripture as they've never had before. For this, Lord, we trust in you. It's it's your work, and we're happy to be a part of it. We pray that you would receive the glory, and this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you remember way back last year and a couple months ago, we were in the beginning of Matthew 18, Jesus started to tell us what the citizens of the kingdom of God look like. And he told us they look like little children, little children who come in their humility and their their relative insignificance with a, a lack of resources or abilities, yet they are blessed. And as we start our passage today, the theme that Jesus pronounced back there in the last chapter is reinforced. Only this time the emphasis is on actual children, which are, which are brought to Jesus. And again, Jesus says in his teaching, for to such or like these belongs the kingdom of heaven. As we've walked through Matthew, we've seen that Matthew as a writer sort of groups together stories for the purpose of of making a point or of illustrating a teaching of Jesus. And sometimes this can seem frustrating. Maybe we wish that that he would have just written things in order as they had happened. But the way Matthew is writing is, is very helpful because he's writing in order to tell us what he learned from Jesus as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And seemingly in this section, Matthew 18 and 19, Matthew is giving us kind of a theme of our relationships. Again, it started off with children in Matthew 18. In the middle of Matthew 18, we learned about what to do if our brother or sister sins against us. We learned about in the beginning of Matthew 19, the the marriage relationship, that covenant and bond that was made before God. And it's no wonder that Matthew writes about forgiveness right before he writes about marriage, because perhaps there's no relationship on earth that requires more constant forgiveness than the closest one that there is between a husband and a wife. Well, next, as we see today, Matthew speaks of two other kinds of relationships. First, again, he goes to children. And finally, we see one other kind of relationship, and that is the relationship we have with our possessions, with our wealth. And all of these things really go back to where we started in the beginning of chapter 18, because all of these relationships reflect on our heart, whether it has to do with forgiveness, with our marriage, with our children, or with our wealth, all of those things require a mindset and righteous attitude for them to be functional. And they also require humility. Humility. The opposite of humility, of course, is pride, which is a great enemy of following Jesus. If we refuse to forgive or refuse to love or refuse to stoop down for those who are below us, or if we cling tightly to our possessions, we do not reflect our Savior. Some of us have very few possessions, but we may still have pride and we might be prone to cling to that or something else like it's our dying resource. Even in that situation, these lessons are applicable. We see as kind of a main idea today. If you have a bulletin, you can follow along in the back there that entrance into the kingdom is granted to those who truly follow Jesus. But, but that does not come without a cost. And of course, this passage ends with Jesus' famous statement, many who are first will be last and the last first. So as we begin, we'll look first then at the last. And uh, that is again, the, the little children that are brought to Jesus. They were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them, verse 13, and pray. But then we also read that the disciples rebuked the people. We'll pause there. Now there's going to be a a really intentional between the lines comparison that is made in this passage. I think that's why Matthew puts this little short story about the children right before the longer story about the rich young man. These children were brought to Jesus for a blessing. And uh, this wouldn't have been uncommon. People would often request that a a rabbi or a great leader would would bless their children and pray for them. Uh, It was often done at the age of 13 when parents would ask for a blessing on their children to sort of graduate from being a little child into being responsible for the commandments. That's where eventually the idea of the Jewish bar mitzvah came from. Um, But we see here, That these are children and the word refers to very young children at the most, maybe six or seven years old. And the point of this story is not so much the blessing that they were seeking, but really it's has much to do with the disciples response. And then what Jesus had to say to them again, the children were brought to him. And the disciples rebuked the people. Now, we don't have any idea what they said. They might have said, well, Jesus is too busy or there are more important things for him to do or or something to that regard. They probably thought, in a, in a sense, that they were helping with the bigger picture of Jesus' ministry. Now, why would they have done that? Well, a little bit of cultural background tells us that, that children didn't exactly have the same Place in society as, as they do in ours today. Now, sometimes we might go to the, the opposite extreme. Sometimes we might be guilty of, of sort of idolizing our children or uh, making everything about their happiness and contentment that might not be good either. But in Jesus day, many people saw children as an annoyance, especially if they didn't have children of their own. And even if they weren't annoying, they certainly were the least and the lowest of society. They didn't have much to offer. Now we should note that this view didn't come from a scriptural viewpoint. It didn't come from a righteous viewpoint. In fact, uh, God in the Old Testament says quite the opposite. Just for one example, Psalm 127 verse three says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb, a reward we won't go there, but the Proverbs also speak of, of children and even grandchildren as, as the glory of their family. So, so this despising of children that took place here and in other times was not in keeping with God's viewpoint. And Jesus shows us that. What is his response? The disciples rebuked the people in verse 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such, Belongs the kingdom of heaven. The the immediate lesson here is simple. Jesus includes the children. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not just for mature adults. It's very possible for young children to come to him. with, With understanding, though childlike, and with faith, though simple, they come. And he does not despise them. Now, can children cause trouble? Of course. Can they be a a frustration at times? Of course. Do they change the way that your life is when you have them? Yes, they do. But children truly are the next generation of our world. That goes without saying. But for us, they're the next generation of of the church and a bigger picture. They're the next generation in the kingdom of God if they follow Christ. And Jesus says, it is to such, or the ones like these, that the kingdom belongs. That is, those like the little children, the low, the, the, the despised. Jesus is, again, making a comparison. It will be those childlike disciples who are greatest in the kingdom. Just like we saw in Matthew 18. The children were brought to Jesus in their humility by their parents probably, in their weakness, and they exemplified the kingdom. Now, Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, in a moment of their flesh, they show sort of the opposite. They revealed the the leftover pride in their hearts as they rebuked the people and, and tried to send them away. And Jesus, again, brings them down a notch by lifting up the least of these. Do we reflect Jesus view here that the children and the others who are the least of these, it is to those who the kingdom belongs. Now, truly God is the owner of his own kingdom, but the language here expresses this idea that is to the least of these, those who have nothing that take possession truly of God's kingdom. Do we see these as, as the next generation of our church of, of the kingdom of, of the world, that we should not despise them for their lowliness, but rather we should embrace that kind of lowliness for ourselves. Well, this is where the comparison begins then, because while it it may not have been that this young man came to Jesus immediately after this conversation, Matthew puts these stories together to make this big point. After the little children are brought to Jesus in their humility and insignificance, then this young man comes and it's really the opposite. We've gone from the last then to the first and look at verse number 16. Behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this is one of those stories that you could find in all three of what are called the synoptic gospels. That's just simply Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we learn a few different things about, about him. Matthew first tells us that he's just a man. Later on, though, we'll read that that he is young and he's wealthy. Uh, if you look at Mark, you'll find that that he's also known as a ruler, which could have been anything from a Pharisee or a, a temple official. It, regardless, he had some kind of of social class and status in the Jewish community. And he also had wealth. And both of those things are important in this passage because compared with the little children, he is not the low and despised of the world. He is the esteemed. And he comes looking for, for some kind of uh, spiritual achievement or a, a spiritual secret. He says, what good deed? What's the one thing? What's?" What is the key that unlocks this Jesus? What can I do to have eternal life? Now, the way he asks this question, and especially when we see Jesus answer, it gives us an idea of his mindset. Now, clearly he had accomplished or at least attained much at his young age. He thought, surely there is something greater that I can do to unlock eternal life? Well, what does Jesus answer? Well, to start, Jesus says this. Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you would enter eternal life, keep the commandments. We'll stop there. I think Jesus' response tells us a few things. One, it tells us that, that Jesus... We might say is already on to him or he he perceives something in this young man, something in his voice, something in his question that that we might not see immediately. Jesus perceives that although he seems honest and earnest and prudent about going deeper in a spiritual sense, that there will be something that is going to hinder him. There is more than meets the eye here. First, Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is but one who is good. Even with that, Jesus kind of, he levels the playing field a little bit, reminding him that that this man, even if he does find this spiritual secret, cannot be truly good, at least not in the same sense that God is good. Then he gives him a simple response, uh, a simple response that really is not entirely possible, but, he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, right there, there might have been an admittance of, of honesty. The young man might have said, well, I've, I've certainly tried to keep them. I've done my best. I, I think I'm pretty good, but I've, I've probably fallen short. I haven't been able to keep them perfectly. I haven't always been righteous. There might have been humility. There, there might have been a childlike demeanor. But instead, I think we see the young man dig himself into a deeper hole. He asks the question, which ones? So Jesus gives him some, and he says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Now, all those come out of the, the Ten Commandments. And then he gives them one more, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is what we've come to see as kind of a uh, a summary commandment. Now, notice that all of these things are external. He gives uh, the five commandments that can most easily be observed on the outside. And they are five commandments also that have to do with how we treat others. And then he sums them up with, again, that main one, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at this point, the young man is probably disappointed in Jesus' answer for he already knew all these things. These were all so simple. He had learned these from the time he was a young man. And in fact, he responds, the young man, verse 20, said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now again, this tells us something about his mindset. Maybe he honestly believed he was blameless in these categories. He honestly believed he he was at a point where he could move beyond these simple commandments. He wanted something deeper, something more significant, some, some secret, some spiritual adventure, something noteworthy and big. These simple things they didn't seem to be enough. I've already kept all these. What, what else? What else? These things, though, being simple, are not as simple as they seem. And as we will see, had he truly been keeping these things in a sense which was more than just external, then the next thing Jesus is going to tell him would not have been as difficult as it was. You see, not just in his state as a, as a rich and a, a ruler, a social class and financial class, not just in that assumption was he first, he was also first in his own mind. He was, by his own assumption, on top of his game. I have kept all these. What is the real thing I lack? Now, before we go on, there's a, there's a, an understated warning here for any of us and the warning us for us is that none of us should ever relax into the attitude of I've done all that. Or there's gotta be something better. If we're truly honest with ourselves, even if we are moral and upstanding people, can we honestly say that we have totally kept all these? And these are just the external ones. These are just the ones that other people can see. What about the inward commandments that have to do with the righteousness of of loving God, of of having no idols, of not coveting? Can we truly say "I've, I've kept all these? And what if we add in Jesus' explanation of these commandments in Matthew chapter five, where even to lust is to commit adultery, and even to hate your brother is to have murdered. Can we truly say all these we have kept? It's in this mindset that, uh, that the pride in our heart begins to come out. There's no childlike humility in this kind of answer, in that view of ourselves. When we make the assumption and assessment about ourselves that that we've, we've done all that, what else is there? When we quickly move beyond these, which are not so simple, but really mountainous things of righteousness, thinking that we've actually totally kept God's standard here. We place ourselves at the top of a ladder But when we think we have handled it all, when we think we've arrived, one little statement from Jesus can knock us down. And that's what we see next. Looking at verse 21, we see an obstacle. We read that Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, if you would be complete, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Here then, Jesus gives the final blow. And I think, (laughs) I think Jesus was working up to this the whole time. After all, this was a conversation, it was ongoing. You don't get the whole picture until you finish the conversation. And this is where Jesus was headed. He knew that this young man would assess himself as being blameless in certain ways, except for this, and this is what repentance would have looked like for this young man. Even if he was truly blameless in these five commandments, and even if he could actually say that he had perfectly loved his neighbor, then to turn from his riches and follow Jesus was the thing he was lacking. Now, this wasn't what the young man was looking for, apparently, because we read in verse 22 that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sad. Even though he was rich, the cost was too high. He couldn't stomach it. He had just gone from, in his mind, being at the top to being just one step away from from reaching eternal life to being shaken down to his core. You can think of it this way. Jesus touched the one thing in his life that represented a raw nerve, and that was his riches. Now notice if we go all the way to the end of Jesus' words to this young man, we see that the, the ultimate objective of his command was that the young man should follow him. That was the goal. The discussion about the keeping of the commandments, that was to get him to a certain point. And even in this, Jesus is showing that it's not enough to just be morally and outwardly upright, even by those five commandments standard, you must Follow Jesus in in the Sermon on the Mount said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no wise enter the kingdom. Certainly those scribes and Pharisees were like this young man. They'd kept the commandments, at least mostly and in their minds. But for this man to follow Jesus, he would have to leave behind the one thing that he just couldn't bear to leave behind. That was his money. Now, Peter, Andrew, James and John, they left their their nets and their boats and they followed Jesus. Uh, Matthew left his his tax booth and followed Jesus. But this man's greatest obstacle was what he thought was his greatest asset. Now we'll apply this because this has something to say to all of us, but let's keep reading for a moment. In verse 23, Jesus then, after this young man went away sad, he turned to his disciples and he said, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus says here is very telling and it's very true. Now, the Bible doesn't warn us that it's a sin or it's unrighteous to have riches, but it does warn us about the love of them. It doesn't warn us about having possessions, but it certainly does warn us about loving them, of coveting them. Riches and financial blessings are a temptation, and they are an obstacle to truly following Jesus. Now, is this passage a commandment for every one of us that we all must sell all of our possessions and give them to the poor? I don't think so. This was the obstacle for this young man that Jesus knew he had to overcome in coming to him. And certainly there were rich people. We read about some of them in in 1 Timothy. Paul was writing to those rich believers who Timothy was dealing with and saying, not that they had to sell everything, but that they were to not trust in their riches and that they were to have an open hand of generosity. Think of, of Joseph of Arimathea who used his wealth to give a tomb to Jesus at his death. Think of all the saints in the acts and the epistles that gave generously out of their riches. The command for them wasn't to become poor yet, there is a marker there that we see. When it came to the kingdom, those people valued the kingdom of God more than their possessions. And this young man did not. And Jesus tells us here that many who are rich have the same mindset. He says, it is very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And he doubles down on this. He says it is, it is harder or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Now, every time you've heard this, a sermon on this passage, you've heard one of two things, either that Jesus was talking about a literal eye of a needle or that he was talking about a, a little gate in the walls of Jerusalem that, that a camel could just barely squeeze through if he went down on his knees. Well, that notion kind of does well in a sermon because it's fun to talk about how we need to get down on our knees to come before Jesus. And, uh, but the fact is there's, there's no historic evidence that there was such a gate in Jerusalem. And without going into any more detail, that leaves us with the idea that Jesus was saying not that this was just really difficult, but that it was impossible. It is easier for a camel to thread a needle with his whole body than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom on his own. Now, the disciples, they understood Jesus' analogy because of their response. We see that they understood that he was saying it was impossible because listen to what he says. He says in verse 26 or verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished saying, who then can be saved? Now, here's where the comparison comes from where we started with the little children in verse 13. When they came to Jesus, the disciples rebuked them and tried to turn their parents away. But when this man came to Jesus, it was Jesus who, not with actual words of pushing him away, but with his teaching, he turned him away. You see the mindset difference? The disciples saw this guy coming from a mile away and they said, now, surely he is a great candidate for the kingdom of heaven. He's eager. He keeps the law and he's rich. He must be a blessed man. But when it came to the little children, they said, we don't have time for that. Now, if the disciples view of the children reflected a somewhat common view of that day, then their view of this man also reflects a common view of riches, which is a simple viewpoint that riches equals blessings from God. He was a man, a, a devout Jew. He knew the law. He said he kept it. And on top of all that, God had blessed him with many riches. If in our day, somebody came to us like that and said, what's the one thing I need to do to be saved? We would be probably quick to have them pray a a quick prayer and say, get them into the church so that he can start giving in the offering. But this man, if we had told him that, would have missed what, what he actually needed. He would have missed the very thing that Jesus emphasized, that he needed to repent from his greed and turn and follow Jesus. But he couldn't. And the disciples, again, they were astonished. If he can't be saved, if this man, this righteous, upright and and wealthy man, if he can't enter the kingdom, then who can? Now, they might have been expecting Jesus, if they'd been paying attention, they might have been expecting him to say, well, little children can enter the kingdom. Poor people can enter the kingdom. The despised people can enter the kingdom. But listen to Jesus' response. They asked, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Who can enter the kingdom? Who can be saved? Now, as a side note here, this passage is helpful because uh, it uses four different things kind of in the same context and as synonyms. It talks about gaining eternal life. It talks about entering the kingdom of heaven, entering the kingdom of God and being saved. And all, all those four things are used to describe the same thing here. So we're asking, and you could reword the disciples question. If this man can't enter the kingdom, who can? If this man can't be saved, who can? If this man can't have eternal life, who can? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Now, fortunately, though, Jesus does answer this because though he says, with man, this is impossible, verse 26, he says, with God, all things are possible. Who can be saved? With man, it is impossible. Who can enter the kingdom? With man, it is impossible. Who can have eternal life? With man, it is impossible. This is what the rich young man was missing. He was looking for that one final thing he needed to do to gain eternal life, to gain salvation, to enter the kingdom of heaven. But the thing was not what he was expecting. When it came to repentance and following Jesus, he couldn't do it. He couldn't stomach it. It goes right back to Jesus' first words to him. Why do you ask me about what is good? Only God is good. And truly, it is only the righteousness and goodness of God that is good enough for heaven, good enough for eternal life. It's not that, though this man thought he was 99% of the way there, just needing that one more little bump to get him up over the top. No, he was essentially 0% of the way there because the thing he lacked was the thing that we all need, but it was the thing that also Jesus says was impossible. For him, It was his riches and his greed that he needed to turn from and follow Jesus. For many in our day, it's still her riches. We live in relative wealth to the rest of the world. Even the poorest among us have homes and transportation and smartphones. And very few, though some are, but very few are actually starving in our nation. We are independent in our minds. We're self-sufficient, and that is what will always keep us from God. The minute we come to God and say, I know I can do it, Lord. You just got to tell me that one more thing. The minute we say, I've got this. I just need the secret. Then Jesus will turn to us, and he will strike the nerve the one thing that runs right up against repentance. Maybe it's riches, maybe it's something else. maybe it's our intellect. Uh, for many who've who have who have outsmarted the scriptures, so to speak, who have who have who have gone beyond believing in myths and fables like they would say the Bible teaches for them, that's their obstacle. for some, maybe it's it's their pride. For some, maybe it's lust. For some, maybe it's, it's anger. There's always a nerve right where our sin meets repentance. And Jesus will always touch that nerve if we come to him and try to avoid it. And we will find on our own strength that what it takes to be a disciple, to enter the kingdom, to be saved, is too much for us to stomach. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We could reword that and still be faithful to the intention of the text. We could say with man, nobody can be saved. But with God, it is possible. Listen to a few scriptures. What kind of people? can, can God miraculously save second Timothy two, uh, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil and listen, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So he's talking about enemies or opponents to the truth. And then listen, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth that may they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Yes, even those who despise the truth with God, it is possible for them to come to the truth. Acts 5 verse 30 and 31, Peter is, is standing before the high priests and Sadducees who've, who've had him arrested. And he says in his, his, in his speech, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as right at right hand and leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's again, that's why Jesus came to seek and to save his own lost people and God can save them. And again, in Acts 11 verse 18, uh, where they were speaking about the miracle of, of the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit, when when the people heard this, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Do you see that? Whether it's an enemy or whether it's Jew or Gentile, or whether it's a rich man or a proud man or an angry man, it is impossible for that person to enter eternal life on his own, but with God, It is possible. His grace can grant repentance to the least and the greatest, to the worst of the worst, and to those who are seemingly moral. In our flesh, we've probably all looked at someone and said, you know what, I just can't see how that person could ever be saved. I can't see how that person could ever believe. But the fact is, we all must look in the mirror and say, I just can't believe how that person was ever saved. Amen. And this is what the disciples were saying. If this man can't be a disciple, how can we? He's got everything. He's got riches. He's, he's got social status. He's young. Who knows? He's probably handsome and had a good-looking wife too. Who knows? He had everything except what he needed. With God, this is possible. The question then becomes, has, has Jesus struck a nerve in you where, where your obstacle, your sin or pride comes up against following him, comes up against repentance? Do you feel that it would be impossible to give that thing over to him? It might be. In fact, it probably is, according to Jesus' words, it probably is impossible. Because even if you overcame that, there'd be something else. But with God, it is possible. His grace is so powerful and strong, it can overcome the tightest death grip of our sinful flesh. God can make a weeping, lowly disciple out of the biggest and stubbornest tough guy in the world. He can bring the strong to their knees and he can exalt the little lowliest child to the heights of his very kingdom. This is God's grace. What is it? What is it that you are holding on to in coming to Christ? Is it your riches like this man? Is it pride? Is it lust? Is it anger? What is it? Of all these things, we could say, as Proverbs eleven four says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Again, you could insert anything in there. Lust does not profit in the day of wrath. Anger does not profit. Pride does not profit in the day of wrath. Have you avoided coming to Christ because it seems impossible? Dear one, by his grace, it is possible. Finally, we wrap up the passage and we see a promise. And uh, read verse 27 through 30. Peter said in reply, see, we we have left everything and followed you. What will be our reward? What then will we have? Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Jesus meant by telling his 12 disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones, especially since one of them, Judas, wouldn't even prove to be a true disciple. But to simplify it, we could say this, those who were low will rule with Jesus. Those who gave up will receive. When Mark tells this story, uh, he emphasizes that the blessings will be in this life and the next. Now, in this life, they will come with persecutions, but they will be blessings nonetheless. Now, Jesus, I think, is using hyperbole here. If you twist this or try to hold, you know, Jesus, I gave a hundred bucks to that poor person last week. Where's my hundred thousand or uh, ten thousand? Sorry, my math wasn't very good there. Um, where is it, Lord? If we hold to that, then we become like those who we see preaching on TV, that if you just send in a seed, you'll become rich the next day. And uh, that's not the truth of this passage. Rather though, those who truly give up all for Christ will be blessed beyond measure. For some, it might be these possessions. It may not be a hundred times in a dollar amount, what we've given up, but following Jesus with little is a hundred times no, it's infinitely more blessed than walking with our riches. But sad. And truly the greatest gift and inheritance which Jesus closes with is eternal life. It's this salvation, it's it's this entrance into the kingdom. A reality now and fullness later. I'm reminded of Psalm 37, which says, better is the little that the righteous have than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked are broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And that sounds much like Jesus' words at the end of this chapter. The many who are first will be last and the last first. Little children don't have much to give up in coming to the Lord. They don't have much at all. Some of us have given up much, and we've realized the greatness of this promise that we are blessed a hundredfold in following the Lord. Some of us, though disciples, may still wrestle with something that still strikes a nerve. And though we're following Jesus, we say, I just can't get past this. That we could too say with man, it is impossible, but with God, it is possible. And some of you have heard the gospel many hundreds of times, perhaps, or maybe you're hearing it for the first. And you say, I can't even think, I can't even imagine what it would be like to to, to come to Christ, to turn and follow him. And the message to you is that with man, it is impossible. But with God, by his grace and mercy, it is possible. Come to him where you are. Find his grace strong enough to break the tightest, grip of the flesh, be set free.